Chapter Nine of the Four Pools Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Four Pools Mystery by Jean Webster. Chapter Nine: The Expedition to Luray. Toward eleven o'clock one morning. The Colonel, Radnor, and I were established in lounging chairs in the shade of a big cadalpa tree on the lawn. It was a warm day, and Rad and I were just back from a tramp to the upper pasture, a full mile from the house. We were addressing ourselves with considerable zest to the frosted glasses that Solomon had just placed on the table, when we became aware of the sound of galloping hoofs. And a moment later, Polly Mathers and her sorrel mare, Tiger Lily, appeared at the end of the sun-flecked lane. An Irish setter romped at her side, and the three of them made a picture. The horse's shining coat, the dog's silky hair, and Polly's own red-gold curls were almost of a colour. I believe the little witch had chosen the two on purpose. In her dark habit and mannish hat, with sparkling cheeks and laughing eyes, she was as pretty an apparition as ever enhanced a May morning. She waved her crop gaily and rode toward us across the lawn. Howdy, she called, in a droll imitation of the mountain dialect. Ain't you uns gonna ask me to light a while, and set a bit and talk a spell? Radnor's face had flushed quickly as he perceived who the rider was, but he held himself stiffly in the background while the Colonel and I did the honours. It was the first time, I know, that Polly and Rad had met since the night she refused to dance with him, and her appearance could only be interpreted as a desire to make amends. She sprang lightly to the ground. Turned Tiger Lily loose to graze about the lawn, and airily perched herself on the arm of a chair. There was nothing in her manner, at least, to suggest that her relations with any one of us were strained. After a few moments of neighbourly gossip with the Colonel and me, Rad was monosyllabic and remote. She arrived at her errand. Some friends from Savannah were stopping at the hall on their way to Virginia Hot Springs, and, as is usual, when strangers visit the valley, they were planning an expedition to Luray Cave. The cave was on the other side of the mountains, about ten miles from Four Pools. Since I had not yet visited it, that was at least the reason she gave. She had come to ask the three of us to join the party on the following day. Rad was sulky at first, and rather curtly declined on the ground that he had to attend some business. But Polly scouted his excuse and added significantly that Jim Madison had not been asked. He accepted this mark of repentance with a pleased flush, and before she rode away. He had become his former cheerful self again. The colonel also demurred on the ground that he was getting too old for such diversions, but Polly laid her hands upon his shoulders and coaxed him into acquiescence. Even a mummy must have unbent.
before such persuasion. As a matter of fact, though, the colonel was only too pleased with his invitation. It flattered him to be included with the young people, and he was immensely fond of Polly. It struck me suddenly as I watched her, how like she was to that other girl of eighteen years before. There danced in Polly's eyes the same eager joy of life that vitalized the face of the portrait over the mantelpiece upstairs. The resemblance for a moment was almost startling. I believe the same thought had come to Colonel Gaylord. The old man's eyes dwelt upon her with a sadly wistful air, and I liked to feel that it was of Nanny he was thinking. Radnor and I had been invited to a dance that same evening at a neighbouring country house, but when the time came I begged off on the plea of wishing to rest for the ride the next morning. The real reason, I fancy, was that I too was suffering from a touch of Radnor's trouble, and, since I had no chance of winning her, it was the part of wisdom to keep out of hearing of Polly's laugh. In any case, I went to bed and to sleep, while Rad went to the party, and I have never known exactly what happened that night. I rose early the next morning, and as I went downstairs, I saw Solomon crawling around on his hands and knees on the parlour floor collecting the remnants of a French clock which had stood on the mantelpiece. "'How did that clock come to be broken?' I asked a trifle sharply, thinking I had caught him in a bad piece of carelessness. "'Can't say, sir,' Solomon returned, rising on his knees and looking at me mournfully. "'I specs old master been chastising young master again. It's powerful destructive on the brick your brack. I went on out of doors, wondering sadly if Radnor could have been drinking, and accusing myself for not having gone to the party and kept him straight. It was evident at breakfast that something serious had happened between him and his father. The colonel appeared unusually grave, and Rad, after a gruff, good morning, sat staring at his plate in a dogged silence. Throughout the meal he scarcely so much as exchanged a glance with his father. I tried to talk as if I noticed nothing, and in the course of the somewhat one-sided conversation happened to mention our proposed trip to Luray. Rad returned that he had visited the cave a good many times, and did not care about going. I was puzzled at this for I knew that the cave was not the chief attraction. But I discreetly dropped the subject, and shortly after we rose from the table. As I left the room, I saw the colonel walk over and lay his hand on Radnor's arm. You will change your mind and go, my boy, he said. But Rad shook the hand off roughly and turned away. As I went on out to the stables to give orders about the horses, I felt in anything but the proper spirits for a day of merry-making. However much the colonel may have been to blame in the quarrel of the night before, and the French clock told its own story, still I could not help but feel that Rad should have borne with him more patiently. The scene I had just witnessed in the dining-room made me miserable. 
The colonel was a proud man, and apology came hard for him. His son might at least have met him halfway. Going upstairs to my room a few minutes later, I caught a glimpse through the open door of someone standing before the mantelpiece. Thinking it was Radnor waiting to consult me, I hurried forward and reached the threshold before I realized that it was the colonel. He was standing with folded arms before the picture, his eyes gleaming from under beetling brows, were devouring it hungrily, line by line. His face was set rigidly with a look, whether of sorrow or loneliness or remorse, I do not know, but I do know that it was the saddest expression I have ever seen on any human face. It was as if, in a single illuminating flash, he had looked into his own soul, and seen the ruin that his ungoverned pride and passion had wrought against those he loved the most. So absorbed had he been with his thoughts that he had not heard my step. I turned and stole away, realizing suddenly that he was an old man, broken, infirm, that his life with its influence for good or evil was already at an end. He could never change his character now, no matter how keenly he might realize his defects. Poor little Nanny's willfulness was at last forgiven, but the forgiveness was fifteen years too late. Why could not that moment of insight have come earlier to Colonel Gaylord, have come in time to save him from his mistakes? I passed out of doors again, pondering somewhat bitterly the exigencies of human life, the bright spring morning with its promise of youth and joy seemed jarringly out of tune. The beauty was but surface deep, I told myself pessimistically. Underneath it was a cruel world. Before me in the garden path a jubilant robin was pulling an unhappy angleworm from the ground, and a little farther on, under a blossoming apple tree, the kitchen cat was breakfasting on a baby robin. The double spectacle struck me as significant of life. I was casting about for some philosophical truths to fit it, when my reverie was interrupted by a shout from Radnor. I turned to find the horses, three of them, waiting at the portico steps. Rad was going then after all. He and his father had evidently patched up some sort of truce, but I soon saw that it was only a truce. The two avoided crossing eyes, and as we rode along they talked to me instead of to each other. The party met at Mather's Hall. The plan was for us to ride to Luray that morning, spending most of the afternoon there, and then return to the hall for a supper and dance in the evening. The elder ladies took the carriage, while the rest of us went on horseback, a couple of servants following in the buckboard with the luncheon. Mose, bare feet, Lindsay, Woolsey and all, was brought along to act as guide, and he was fairly purring with contentment at the importance it gave him over the other negroes. It seems that he had been in the habit of finding his way around in the cave ever since he was a little shaver, and he knew the route, Radnor told me, better than the professional guides. 
He knew it so well, in fact, that the entire neighborhood was in the habit of borrowing him whenever expeditions were being planned to Lurave. We left our horses at the village hotel, and after eating a picnic lunch in the woods, set out to make the usual round of the cave. Luray was since been lighted with electricity and laid out in cement walks, but the time of which I am writing was before its exploitation by the railroad, and the cabin was still in its natural state. Each of us carried either candles or a torch, and the guides were supplied with calcium lights, which they touched off at intervals, whenever there was any special object of interest. This was the first cabin of any size that I had ever visited, and I was so taken up with examining the rock formations and keeping my torch from burning my hands that I did not pay much attention to the disposal of the rest of the party. It took over two hours to make the round, and we must have walked about five miles. What with the heavy damp air and the slippery path, I, for one, was glad to get out into the sunshine again. I joined the group about Polly Mathers and casually asked if she knew where Radnor had gone. I haven't seen him for some time. I think he must have come out before us, she replied. And unless I am mistaken, Colonel Gaylord, she added, turning to my uncle, he left my coat on that broken column above Crystal Lake. I am afraid that he isn't a very good cavalier. The colonel, I imagine, had been a very good cavalier in his own youth, and I do not think that he had entirely outgrown it. I will repair his fault, Miss Polly, the old man returned with a curtly bow and prove to you that the boy does not take after his father in lack of gallantry. No, indeed, Colonel Gaylord, Polly exclaimed. I was only joking. I shouldn't think of letting you go back after it. One of the servants can get it. I shortly after ran across Mose and sent him back for the coat, and the incident was forgotten. We straggled back to the hotel in twos and threes. The horses were brought out and we got off amidst general confusion. I rode beside the carriage for a couple of miles, exchanging courtesies with Mrs. Mathers, and then galloped ahead to join the other riders. I was surprised to see neither my uncle nor Radnor anywhere in sight, and inquired as to their whereabouts. I thought they were riding with you, said Polly, wheeling to my side. You don't suppose, she asked quickly, that the colonel was foolish enough to go back for my coat, and we've left him behind. One of the men laughed. He has a horse, Miss Polly, and he knows how to use it. I dare say, even if we did leave him behind, that he can find his way home. I sent Mose back for the coat, I remarked. The colonel probably feels that he has had enough frivolity for one day and has preferred to ride straight on to Four Pools. It occurred to me that Rad and his father had ridden home together to make up their quarrel, and the reflection added considerably to my peace of mind. I had felt vaguely uncomfortable over the matter all day, for I knew that the old man was always miserable after a misunderstanding with his son, 
and I strongly suspected that Radnor himself was far from happy. When we arrived at Mather's Hall, Polly slipped from her saddle and came running up to me as I was about to dismount. She laid her hand on the bridle and asked, in the sweetest way possible, if I would mind riding back to the plantation to see if the Colonel were really there, as she could not help feeling anxious about him. I noticed with a smile that she made no comment on the younger man's defection, though I strongly suspected that she was no less interested in that. I turned about and galloped off again, willing enough to do her bidding, though I could not help reflecting that it would have been just as easy for her, and considerably easier for me, had she developed her anxiety a few miles back. When I reached the four corners where the road to the four pools branches off from the valley turnpike, I saw the wagon coming with the two Mathers negroes in it. But without any sign of Mose, I drew up and waited for them. Hello, boys, I called. What's become of Mose? That's Mo, and I can say, Mr. Arnold, one of the men returned. We waited for him a powerful time, but appears like he's evaporated. I reckon he's took to de woods, and he's going to walk home. Dat cat I mows, he's monstrous fond of walking. I do not know why this incident should have aroused my own anxiety, but I pushed on to the plantation with a growing feeling of uneasiness. Nothing had been seen of either the colonel or Mose, Solomon informed me, but he added with an excited rolling of his eyes, Mars Rad, he come back nearly an hour ago, and stomped round, like he must crazy, and then went out to de garden. I followed him and found him sitting in the summer house with his elbows on his knees and his head in his hands. "'What's the matter, Rad?' I cried in alarm. "'Has anything happened to your father?' He looked up with a start at the sound of my voice, and I saw that his face was pale. "'My father?' he asked in a dazed way. "'I left him in the cave. Why do you ask?' He didn't come back with the rest of us, and Polly asked me to find him. He's old enough to take care of himself, said Radnor, without looking up. I hesitated a moment, uncertain what to do, and then turned back to the stables to order a fresh horse. To my astonishment, I found the stablemen gathered in a group about Rad's mare, Jenny Lou. She was dashed with foam and trembling and appeared to be about used up. The men fell back and eyed me silently as I approached. "'What's happened to the horse?' I cried. "'Did she run away?' One of the men reckoned that Mars Red had been whipping her. "'Whipping her!' I exclaimed in dismay. It was unbelievable, for no one, as a rule, was kinder to animals than Radnor. And as for his own Jenny Lou, he couldn't have cared more for her if she had been a human being. There was no mistaking it, however. She was crossed and recrossed with thick welts about the withers. It was evident that the poor beast had been disgracefully handled. Uncle Jake volunteered that Rad had galloped straight into the stable, had dropped the bridle and walked off without a word, 
and he added the opinion that a devil had been conjured him. I was inclined to agree. There seemed to be something in the air that I did not understand, and my anxiety for the colonel suddenly rushed back fourfold. I wheeled about and ordered a horse in an unnecessarily sharp tone, and the men jumped to obey me. It was just sunset as I mounted again and galloped down the lane. For the second time that day I set out along the lonely mountain road leading to Luray, but this time with a vague fear gripping at my heart. Why had Radnor acted so strangely? I asked myself again and again. Could it be connected with last night's quarrel? And where was the colonel? And where was Mose? End of chapter 9